introduced to him, and I watched Jesus pick up the pieces of my life. I watched him pick up the pieces of my brokenness, and he empowered me to strive to live holy. It's not like I'm perfect now, but, but Jesus' grace and his love has empowered me to choose a different way, to choose uh, the way of the scriptures, to choose the way of uh, Jesus' will for sex. So from the time I was 12 to the time I was 18, I was addicted to pornography. And honestly, I looked at it every single day. Like there wasn't really a day that went by that I didn't look at it. And I know that's, that's a lot of details, but I'm saying that off the bat to say that I'm with you, that I'm not uh, perfect. I haven't been perfect. So if you come in tonight and you have some baggage uh, when it comes to sexuality, and there's like maybe an addiction in your life, or maybe you're struggling with uh, boyfriend or girlfriend, I just want to say like there's no judgment here. It's just we're going to look to truth, though, and we're going to see what God says about it and hopefully find grace, and then through that grace, be empowered to change. So I shared this last week, but for me, it was really going too far with a girl that brought me back to Christ. So I had terrible standards for purity in high school. I was in the church, but, uh, but my standard was as long as I didn't go all the way, so to speak, then, then God would love me, because that's better than most of my friends, because most people lose their virginity in high school. So as long as I could keep my V-card, then... God would love me, and God would owe me salvation. It's really silly, but that's the way I thought, and I know a lot of us have thought that way about different things. And uh, right after my senior year, is in July of 2011, uh, got in a bad situation, a compromising situation, uh, was intoxicated, and I had lost that. So I lost that, that standard that I had, and I took things too far. Uh, and that brought me to this place of brokenness, this place of, of truly feeling like, I had nothing to bring to God. And sometimes that's God's greatest gift to us, for us to realize that, that our righteousness, our, our best deeds are filthy rags compared to him. And that's what I realized that night. I realized that I was so filthy. All of a sudden, the gravity and the weight of all the things I had been doing with girls and the things I'd been doing on the computer for the last six or seven years, it all came tumbling down on me. And I felt just crushed. And for about 12 hours, to be honest, I just felt... Uh, cold-hearted. I felt like God could never love me. But then the next morning, I began to cry out to God, and I just began to ask him, God, could you give me a second chance? And, and to be honest, in my head, uh, the way I thought about it was either he's going to forgive me, and I'm going to change, or I'm just going to dive into this. I'm going to leave the faith altogether. But I got a response, unlike I ever thought I would if I had done that. Uh, and, and that was the response of the grace of God, the response of, of the God who goes after the lost sheep, like he leaves the 99, as we talked about in that song, and he goes after the one, and he tells the one, he says, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter uh, just where you've been, but I still love you, I'm still after you. And that truth, that truth that God could love me in the midst of my brokenness, that God didn't tell me to clean it all up and then come to him, but he said, hey, you're really messed up, and I love you in the midst of that, that changed me. And I told God, I said, God, if you could show me that kind of love, if you could give me that kind of grace, when I'd taken everything too far, then I'm going to give my entire life to you. And God, whatever you say, like whatever this book says about life, I'm going to obey it. Because your love is so radical that if you tell me to do something, I know it's out of love. Like even if it's something that at first I wouldn't agree with or something that seems countercultural, I know because of the grace that God showed me, now I know that God's commandments are for my good and he cares about me. And tonight we're going to look at the scriptures to, or to see God's heart for for sex. And I want to tell you off the bat that God's commandments are for your good. That, that everything God says in here about sexuality is for your good. It may not be what culture is telling you about sexuality or what America or politicians or government's telling you or, or what your friends are telling you in class, but this is God's heart for us and it's good. 
And some of it may sting tonight. It may be like, wow, I, I didn't realize God thought this way. But it's for your good. So I pray off the bat that you would know that. And I also want to say, like I said, that these principles that I'll share with you are not like some theoretical principles out there. They're things I've lived. I've lived this. I've been a product of sexual brokenness, and I've seen how God's commandments are for our good. And I want to acknowledge, too, that there's many of us, hopefully, hopefully we all don't think the same way, because I'm hoping we're attracting different kinds of people. There's, there's people here that think differently about sexuality. Maybe uh, the scripture doesn't have authority in your life yet. Maybe you don't really care what it says, and that's okay. It's okay to come here and to process and to hear what God says about it and to say, hey, do I want to submit my life to that or not? So I recognize some of you submit your life to the scriptures and some of you don't. But the one thing I will ask you is that if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you have to know that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. It's God's word. And what it says goes. You know, Jesus, when he called the disciples to follow him, he didn't say, hey, go ahead and choose what you want to pick and choose uh, what parts of me you want to follow. He says, you come, you give your whole life, and you follow me. And that's the call of the Christian. So if you call yourself a Christ follower, whatever this book says, uh, as a Christ follower, you're called to obey it. And something else I want to acknowledge is we often avoid discussing this topic in our society. I got to tell you, it gives me the, like, the queasy sometimes to talk about it. When I, like, guys, I haven't been more nervous in the last couple of days because I have to talk about this in public because it's so controversial. There's just grenades thrown at people as they're fighting about sexuality, like, just, uh, or just emotional and, uh, and uh, just these grenades thrown across the room when we talk about it. If you watch any type of news show that talks about issues like this, like people can't even get a word in. They're just yelling at each other. So oftentimes I think for people like us, we avoid discussing it because we think we're going to get yelled at or it's going to turn into a fight. But God doesn't want us to talk about it that way. God wants us to just to look to the word and see what he says and, and to put our guards down and, and to let his truth lead us. So I pray tonight that even if the truth that the word says is hard to swallow, I pray that, that you would be open to listening to it and you would also know that although truth can be hard, it's hard at times, it actually leads to freedom. So John eight thirty two, I love this verse, it says this, and it says, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. God's truth sets you free. God's truth sets you free. So God's commands, God's truth is for our good, it's for our freedom. And the last thing I want to acknowledge is that nobody's perfect. There's no one who's perfect in this room, including myself. We all have our struggles. And, and this is largely, I want to acknowledge that this is largely the result of, of how drastically our culture has changed over the last 50 years. You know, up until the 1960s, Americans largely believed that sex is something to be saved for a marriage between a man and woman. That was the conventional thinking back then. And, but, but with the continual rise of moral relative, or, or the continual rise of, of moral, uh, moral uh, relativism and the sexual revolution that swept across our nation in the 60s, uh, everything's been rethought. All the things that have been traditionally held as true about sexuality has been rethought. And to be honest, the, the consequences of that is that the sons and daughters of the sexual revolution, so us in this room and people on this campus, have been left broken behind that wake. That's what's happened. So statistics tell us that there's many of us in this room that have been sexually abused. There's, like, I want to acknowledge that right now, that there's many of you and you've been sexually abused. Guys, girls, both. You've been sexually abused by someone, maybe someone that, that you trusted and someone that you love. That's what statistics tell us. Statistics tell us that there's, that there's more people than ever who are addicted to pornography. 
in, in that there's many people inside the church that are addicted to pornography. They tell us that, that, uh, that most people don't hold the biblical standard on sexuality, and it tells us that 50% of our marriages end in divorce. And, and uh, just many children grow up without a dad. These are, this is the reality. I'm not trying to be bleak, but I'm trying to paint a picture of why we should maybe rethink things. Because how our culture is going, how the world is going when it comes to this, it's not working. When 50% of marriages end in divorce, it's not working. So I'm praying that tonight that God's vision for this could compel us to maybe rethink the way we think things or reinforce uh, the biblical view, and that each of you could be people who set the bar when it comes to the way that you interact with people uh, and the way that you uh, treat your significant other and the way that you do marriage and sexuality. So tonight, I believe, although it's been bleak so far, it's going to get better. I believe that tonight is going to be a night of freedom and a night of joy. And I believe that, that God is going to show us that his teachings on, on sexuality make sense, that they're actually the most loving teaching out there on sexuality, and they're ultimately for our good and for our liberation. So I pray that as we unpack the scriptures that you would find freedom, joy, and forgiveness. So tonight's sermon title is this. It's made pure so we can live pure. Made pure so we can live pure. So we're going to talk about how Jesus makes us pure, that he forgives us, he washes us of our sin, and then out of that, that gives us an opportunity to begin to live lives of purity. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. And, and before we jump into that, I just want to explain the background a little bit. So first century Corinth, which is the city that, that Paul's writing to, there's a church that the Apostle Paul, who was one of the leaders of the church, had started in Corinth. And, and he's writing a letter to them. And, and Corinth was uh, the first century version of Las Vegas. It was the Las Vegas of the ancient, uh, or the ancient, uh, or Mediterranean world. So the city was a huge port city. So thousands of sailors and merchants and travelers came through, which led to Corinth becoming a hub of prostitution. So prostitution was a big thing that happened there. And Corinth was also near the city of Athens. Maybe you've heard of that city. And, and the city of Athens was home to Plato and Aristotle and other Greek philosophers. And they had this thinking or this thought called dualism. Okay, so dualism is this idea that there's a spiritual world that's good, and then there's a physical world that's bad. So we talked about that a couple weeks ago. But the idea was that the physical body was viewed as an evil thing that... Uh, God wants us to escape. So this line of thinking had actually made it into the Corinthian church, and they started thinking that sex was just a physical act, and it was just a biological thing, just something you do. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really have spiritual uh, significance. And, and they thought, hey, what's the big deal about having sex with prostitutes to fulfill my sexual urges? That's the way they thought about it. So Paul starts talking about this thing called porneia, and it's where we get the word pornography, you may have guessed, and porneia is sexual immorality, which just refers to any sex outside of marriage between a man and woman. So he begins to unpack this idea. So let's read it, verses 9 through 20. He says this, Or do you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Uh, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, and nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, and swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. It's important to understand here, if you read that, you might think, because I struggle with 
some of those sins that he listed. I've committed some of those things. It says you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So sometimes when we read these texts, we're like, oh crap, I'm really screwed. But Paul is not trying to tell you that if you've ever committed one of these sins that you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But instead what he's saying is if you give into a lifestyle of these sins, like just continuing to live in these sins and continuing to commit them without repenting, which is turning from them, then you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So I just think that's important to understand, that he's not saying if you mess up once that you're doomed. He's saying that if you just live in these sins without repenting, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So verse 12 says, all things are lawful for me. This is a quote that he's referring to. He's not saying this. He's quoting them. But, but not all things are helpful. All things are, are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, so this word porneia again, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? And he says, never. Or do you know that, that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. We heard this phrase last week. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, you, or for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. All right, that's weighty. We'll unpack it. But the main idea tonight is this. If we want to do sex God's way, we must know that God, one, can cleanse us of our impurity. So there's forgiveness available. I pray that some of us find forgiveness tonight. But then also, he can enable us to live a life of purity. So if we want to do sex God's way, we have to know that there's both forgiveness available and then there's empowerment to overcome these sins. So let's pray over this tonight. God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for your beautiful vision on sexuality. And God, I pray tonight that your word would breathe this text to life and that you would implant it deep within our hearts so that, uh, or so that your vision of sexuality would just be something we understand and something we grasp and ultimately not just something we know in our heads, but something that each of us are able to live out. In God's name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so four points tonight. All right, track with me. Four points. This is a heavy thing to try to unpack in 40 minutes, but I'm going to try to do it, all right? So then I've already wasted like 15 or 20. So we're going to do this quick. All right, first thing tonight. If we want to do sex God's way, then we must know that sex is good. Sex is good. All right, we affirm sex in this place. We think sex is a very good thing. Sex was God's idea, and he doesn't regret giving us the beautiful gift of sex. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, this is the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So heavens and the earth is just a way that the biblical authors would say everything, okay? So God created everything. He created it all, okay? And that includes sexuality. He created us. Like when Adam and Eve began to, to get it on in the garden, God was not surprised. He gave them those organs, and he gave us the ability to have sex, all right? So sex is God's creation, and, and God views it as good, which leads to Genesis 1.31. It's at the end of the creation story, and it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So God saw all that he created, and he called it very good. So in the Hebrew, the word for good is tov. So tov can be translated as pleasing or lovely or beautiful. So sex in God's eyes is pleasing. It's 
It's lovely. It's beautiful. And everything he created in this world is good. Things that he created in their natural state are good, including food and nature, uh, the smell of a rose, uh, the sight of a beautiful person, and sex. All these things are good in God's eyes. They're, they're tov. So what does that tell us about God? That tells us that, that God is a God of pleasure and a God of delight. He doesn't want to just make you begrudgingly submit to him, okay? That's not what he's after. Like, I, just you obeying a few rules does not do anything for God, okay? Just be like, oh, I got to do this, got to do that, because big angry guy upstairs wants me to do these things. No, God created good things for us to enjoy. God is a God of pleasure. So there's two extreme views on sex in our society. There's, there's the extreme of viewing sex as an evil thing or the extreme of viewing sex as an ultimate thing. So I want to take a second to unpack these. So two misconceptions. First one, that sex is an evil thing. So this is typically a misconception in the church. Some of you have been to church, like you went to youth group growing up, and there's like three big rules. Don't have sex, don't drink, don't smoke. If you don't do those things, you're good. Right? And that's where we get the thinking like I had, where as long as I don't lose my virginity, then I'm good. Because we get this type of teaching that says if you don't do a few different things, or a few really bad things, then you'll be good. And they view sex as this evil thing to avoid at all costs. And then when you get married, it's really awkward. Because for the last 10 years of your life, 15 years of your life, you've been avoiding it at all costs. Like, I gotta get away from this. And all of a sudden, and it's horrible, it's terrible, and all of a sudden you're supposed to have sex, and you're supposed to enjoy it. That actually leads to a lot of complications in marriages between people who wait, because they don't have an understanding that sex is actually something good. So we need to understand that, that sex was God's idea, and that it's a great thing. It's something he created. God is not a God of dualism, this idea where the physical is bad, spiritual is good. God doesn't view the physical world as bad. God views the physical world as very good, all right? So... Therefore, we need to view sex as an incredible, God-ordained thing to be had, though. You don't just get to have it with whoever you want, whenever you want. I mean, you can, but it's not going to lead to flourishing. If you want to flourish, then, then you should save it for a marriage between a man and woman. That's the proper boundaries that God gives us, and we'll unpack that a little bit later. But the second misconception is sex is an ultimate thing. So sex is something I have to have, and this is the misconception that the world has oftentimes. Like, like sex is everything. I got to have sex. I have to find someone to, or to hook up with. I have to find a boyfriend or girlfriend. I have to find someone to hang out with and someone to do physical things with. And we oftentimes view sex as an end-all, be-all, that this is the key to our happiness. So sometimes we take good things like sex that God has created and we make them into ultimate things in our life. And that's where it becomes sin. So God has given us good things, food, sex, all these things. But then when these things become ultimate things in your life, like food, if it becomes an ultimate thing, then you're going to McDonald's like three times a day. All right? And you're just eating all the time. You're, that's called gluttony. Okay? Money is an ultimate thing, which in two weeks we're going to talk about money. So we're just hitting all the good stuff. All right? So for money, if it becomes an ultimate thing, then it's greed. So if you think about it, money's not bad in and of itself. Sex isn't bad in and of itself. But then when it becomes an ultimate thing, that's when it becomes sin. And that's what our society has fallen into, this idea that sex is an ultimate thing, this idea that, that you have to look at pornography, you have to masturbate, you have to do these things if you're going to have satisfaction, that you have to do these things if you're going to be healthy. So with that said, we need to avoid both of these errors of sex as an evil thing and sex as an ultimate thing, and instead view sex as tov, uh, which is a good thing that God created, a, or created for us to have within the proper boundaries. So the second thing tonight, if we want to do sex God's way, we, then we must know that sex is powerful. Sex is so stinking 
powerful. And we were not meant for pernea or for sexual immorality. So earlier we read 1 Corinthians 6, and in verse 12, Paul quotes a popular quote that the Corinthians were saying. He says, all things are lawful for me. He's quoting them. That's something they would say. But then he responds. He kind of rebuts. He says, but, but not all things are helpful. And then he says again, all things are lawful for me. That's what you say. But I say to you that I will not be dominated by anything. And then verse 13, he quotes him again. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And then he says, God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So Paul quotes that, that popular quote, and something we often say in the church today, but instead we say, I have freedom in Christ, right? I have freedom in Christ, baby. I can, you know, kind of push the boundaries because God's going to forgive me. But Paul says that's not always helpful. Everything that's lawful for you is not always helpful, okay? Something we should practice as a group, that everything that you can do is not always helpful, okay? And then he says, that all things are lawful for me, but then responds by saying that, that you shouldn't be mastered by anything. Instead, you should only be, or only be mastered by one thing, and that's Jesus. So this dualism idea, like I said, was in the church. So they thought if they uh, got hungry, then they should eat. If they got a sexual urge or they were horny, then they should have sex. So they thought, because they thought that, that uh, just what they did with their bodies did not matter because it's only about the spiritual world. It's only about the spiritual things. So then if I get horny, just go ahead and have sex. I'm sorry I said that word. You're probably freaked out I said that. But anyways, uh, <laughs> but Paul responds by saying that the physical world does matter. Our bodies matter. If you want to read about that, read chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Our bodies matter. Paul talks about how our bodies will be raised up on the last day. So, he, so he's saying what we do with our bodies is of immense importance because we're going to have our bodies forever. Like we're going to have bodies in heaven. Do you believe that? God's going to raise your body, and you're going to have a body forever. So what you do with your body is important. So some of you may wonder, what exactly is this sexual morality thing that Paul calls us to avoid? So like I said earlier, it's this word, porneia. So I think we have the definition on the screen. Porneia is any and all or sexual activity outside of a marriage between a man and woman. So this includes any type of sexual deviance outside of this covenant between one man and one woman. And and it includes, but it's, not limited, or, but it's not limited to pornography, oral sex, uh, lustful thoughts, dirty movies, strip clubs, masturbation, and even homosexual sex. So 1 Corinthians 6 9, we read this earlier, and I don't want to just leave something like this there and then not address it. So I'm going to take some time to do it. Paul lists these sins, and one thing he says is men who practice homosexuality. So for some of us, we cringe when we read that. We just do, because, I mean, we've been indoctrinated that, that this is that this is an acceptable thing to do. And, and the reality is it's not just about that, but there's many of us who have friends, parents maybe, uh, there's relatives that do identify as gay. They say, I'm gay. That's part of who I am. It's part of my identity. So when people say that, and then uh, you go and tell them, hey, you know, that's not what you're supposed to do, that feels like an attack on their identity. And, and that's why it's so hurtful to them, because it, it's something that's, that's a part of who you are. Maybe you're in this room and you struggle with uh, same-sex attraction. It, it, it's something you feel like identifies you. Like, like for me, I'd say I'm a white man. And along those lines, you say, I'm gay. It's part of who I am. So that's why it's gotten so touchy, because, because it's something that's become a part of our identity. It, it's part of who we are. And when you say that it's a sin, practicing it's a sin, it's an attack on someone. So that's why it's so deeply personal. That's why we don't talk about a lot at Kyle from the platform, because I know that's something I'd rather talk about just over coffee with you. I think it's a lot better place to talk about it. 
But because it's in the text tonight, I just felt like I should take some time to address it. So this subject is personally very dear to my heart. I've always felt a burden for people who struggle with this and also a burden to, to make sure that, that the church, as much as I can control, which I don't control the church, but, but as much as I can to, to teach a biblical vision on this because I think the church is getting off in some way. So I want to briefly touch on this, but I won't have time to completely unpack it. I just want to take like maybe three minutes to address this. So a couple points I want to make. The first thing is the scriptures are incredibly clear about what is permissible sexuality. In Genesis 2, God performs the first marriage ceremony between a man and woman, and he says you can have sex within this uh, covenant, and then he never considers doing any redefinitions. And as I said last week, I, I painted this picture. The male and the female are two pillars of this marriage relationship. Together, they reflect the image of God. That God created as complementary to one another, and together, uh, or when the man and woman come together, it most wholly reflects the image of God. And God never tries to redefine that throughout the scriptures. Over and over again, in multiple books, in both the Old and New Testament, the Holy Spirit continually reinforces the idea that the only sex that is holy is sex between one man and one woman inside the covenant of marriage. And any sex outside of that, including homosexual marriage, even sex within that, that's all included as sin. So I know that the Bible is definitely countercultural on this and, and that it calls people to deny themselves in this area. And that causes some of us to get queasy. But I want to read Luke 14, to you. It actually came up in my Bible plan today. I just think it's so relevant to this because this shouldn't be something that surprises us because Jesus continually calls us to deny ourselves. So verse 33 says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus' call is continually one of self-denial. So when he says, hey, don't do what you desire, that shouldn't surprise us. Like I desire, you know, like a a heterosexual male a lot of times is attracted to a lot of women. That's just the way guys are wired, right? And, and they may be married to, or to one woman, but they might be tempted to do something sexual with other women. But just because they desire that does not mean they should do it because God has given them uh, a place to do it. So uh, with that said, the Bible does not say, so get this, you need to get this, the Bible does not say that being attracted to someone of the same sex is a sin. Nowhere does it say if you're attracted to someone of the same sex, then that's a sin. And however, it does say that if you act on that, then it's a sin. So we need to separate attraction from action. Can we do that? Attraction from action. Being attracted, like I said, a heterosexual male being attracted to people that are not his wife or a heterosexual woman being attracted to people who are not her husband is not a sin. But then when it becomes a sin is when it's something you do. So Jesus is not as concerned if you are born with a desire. He's not as concerned if you're born with an attraction. Instead, he's concerned with what you do. So we need to separate that. That helps the conversation a lot. The third thing we have to get, well, actually, I do want to share this. Matthew 5, 28, this is how Jesus defines uh, staying pure. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman uh, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he's saying that if you are, are attracted, that's not a sin, but then when you lust, that's when it becomes a sin. So with that idea of sexual sin in mind, that's not about attraction, it's about action, then we shouldn't be as concerned with what our desires are, but instead what God says, and then trying to refrain from doing the things that God tells us not to do. Third thing I want to say is we're not defined by who we're attracted to, but instead we're defined by who God says we are. We're defined by who God says we are. And if you're in this room and you're attracted to people of the same sex, I want to say to you that if you put your faith in Jesus, he doesn't call you gay, he doesn't call you straight. He's not even going to try to change you to be straight. That's not the goal. Instead, he wants to call you a son or daughter. 
For Jesus, there's no identifiers. Like, like he doesn't say, that person's gay, that person's straight. He says, all these people are flawed and sinful, and we all have sinful desires. So I don't walk around saying, hey, I'm a porn addict. That's who I am, because I had a porn addiction. I don't say that. Instead, I say, I'm a son of God who's been washed. You see what Paul says in verse 11. But you're washed, you're sanctified. That's, that's what we define ourselves by. So I think that's why it's gotten so touchy. It's because it's become something we define ourselves by, and I think that makes the conversation very difficult. So I think it's important, if you're going to talk to someone, or if you do struggle with same-sex attraction, to separate your identity from your attraction, and, and to know that, that God doesn't define you by who you're attracted by. And the last thing I want to say, and we're going to move on from this, because I don't want to just focus on one thing, but Kyle is a safe place. Kyle is a safe place for you if you struggle with it. Or if you're like, hey, I don't totally know if I agree with that. It's a safe place for you. I encourage you that if you do call yourself a follower of Christ, to try to see God's vision in the scriptures and to submit yourself to it. I do call you to do that. And I call everyone to do that. It doesn't matter what it is. But if you're struggling, if it's something you're kind of navigating through, it's a safe place, guys. We love each other here. Like some of us don't agree on everything. But again, like I said, I pray that if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, that you would seek to see God's heart and that, that you would submit to it. And that's just being true to myself because I do that to you every week. I say, the Bible says this and we should submit to it. All right? So I'm done with that. So again, sexual morality and any sexual sin or sexual activity, or, okay, I'm going to back up. Sexual morality and any sexual sin is any sexual activity that happens outside of marriage between a man and woman. That's what pornea is. And Paul boldly declares that our bodies are not meant for sexual morality. And he reminds us of the spiritual importance of our bodies, and he says that our bodies matter. So verses 15 through 17 says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? And he says, Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So Paul says, if your body matters, if what you do with your body matters, then why would you fuse yourself physically to people that you're not married to? Why would you fuse your body or fuse yourself spiritually and physically with a prostitute? Why would you do that? So these are what the Corinthians are dealing with, prostitution. I don't think many of us are probably dealing with that. Maybe, like I'm not ruling it out, but most of us struggle more with pornography or struggle with uh, just hooking up with random people or sleeping with our boyfriend or girlfriend. That's what we struggle with more. And Paul says... If your, body, if your body matters, then you should save that for marriage. You should save that for marriage. Why would you want to fuse your body together with someone who's not your spouse that's committed to you for life? So he draws this idea of, of two will become one flesh from Genesis 2.24. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So as I said last week, this word for one flesh is a cod in the Hebrew. And it means to be fused together at the deepest level. So a cod, when you have sex with someone, you're blurring the line between you and that person. You're becoming one flesh with that person. So when two people become a cod, they are uniting their lives together. And Paul's decrying this act. He's saying, he's saying, why would you physically fuse yourself or unite yourself to someone if you're not actually willing to unite yourself with this person uh, spiritually and legally? You know, marriage is a legal thing as well. It should all be one package, spiritual oneness, physical oneness, legal oneness. It should all be one package. He says a cod should be something that's saved to be, or to be formed within the context of a legal, spiritual bond before God. Where it says, I'm with you for better or for worse, for life. That's the safest place to form a cod. So Paul again says, why would you want to become a cod with someone 
who's not your spouse? Why would you want to give yourself to someone who's not going to be there in the morning? Why would you want to do that? Like, why would you do that to yourself? They might not be there in the morning, but if you're married, and obviously divorces happen, but that's not God's vision. If you're married, you're there. Like, you're in this thing for life. Even when they have stinky breath in the morning, you're in this thing for life. Even, even when they annoy you, they have to be there still. That's the whole idea of marriage. God knows that, that for a cod to be done in a safe place, it has to be done in a place where people are committed for better or for worse. So with that said, sex is powerful. And God's view of sexuality is much higher than our culture. Culture says that sex is just physical, it's just biological. Let's get physical, right? It's play for adults. That's the best way to define the way we view sex as a culture. It's just something you do for fun. But God says sex is about so much more. It's about a cot. It's about becoming one flesh with someone else. And part of it is play. You know, it's fun. I'm not going to lie. But it's so much more than that. It's two human beings become infused together at the deepest levels. So if we want to get or give a fresh and compelling vision of sexuality that doesn't just say, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, that the church often does, then we need to know that sex is powerful, that sex is sacred, and that it's, and that's about way more than just obeying a few rules. But instead, it's about this, this powerful gift that God has given us. So inside of marriage, sex is meant to be a powerful event that continually draws you back to your spouse. But outside of marriage, it dehumanizes people, and it makes people into objects. All right, so sex is powerful. There's a third thing we need to get. If we want to do sex God's way, then we must flee sexual morality. If we want to do it God's way, we have to flee porneia. So verses 18 through 20 says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And you're not your own. You're not your own. It's not just your body. You're not your own. For Jesus bought you with a price. Jesus gave his own life for you. So glorify God in your body. So Paul says that since you're bought with a price, since you've been forgiven by Jesus through a sacrificial death on the cross, then you should glorify God with the way you live your life and, and, and by the ways in which you use your body. And one of the main ways you can glorify God is by, or by living a life of sexual purity. So with that said, we need to flee sexual immorality. We need to get away from it. We need to run as far away from it as possible. That's what flee means here in the Greek. Get as far away as possible. Get away from it. Don't toe the line. Some of you like to toe the line. Like we do a little cuddling, right? A little cuddling, a little kissing. No, do not toe the line. But get away from it. You should not be alone with that boy at 12 o'clock at night laying on the couch with him. Get away. Run. So we were designed to have sexual relations with one person for our entire lives inside the beautiful covenant of marriage. So don't even get close to the line with someone who's not that person. Flee. Because God has destined you for holiness, and God's boundaries, God's commands are for your good. So a question I get all the time, which I kind of alluded to this already, but is the question, hey, how far can I go until it's too far, right? How far can I go? Where's the line for sexual purity? And last weekend, small group, if you went, which if you didn't go, uh-uh, I'm kidding. Go to small group, though. But Song of Solomon says this. You read this last week. This is like a graphic scene here. There's some poetry happening, but, but this is a scene of a 
or of a husband and wife, you know, doing the deed. And then she gives us some good advice. So verse 6 and 7 says, his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. And then like the wife turns and, and she's talking to us. And she says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, it's good stuff, that you shall not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So, so she says, do not awaken love until the proper time. So to this woman, the question is not how far can I go, like how close can I get to the line, but the question is when can we start? She doesn't want to go anywhere near sex before marriage. She wants us to wait till marriage to start. So don't even start toying around. The question should not be how close can I get to the line, but how far away do I need to stay to protect myself before marriage? It's not like God is cool with some sin as long as you don't do the big deed. God wants you to stay pure before marriage in every single way to only share the gift of sex with your spouse because he loves you and he knows that's what's best for you. So Jesus gives you a line if you want it. And we read this earlier, but verse 27 and 28, he says, you've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery. So this is your line. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her heart or with her in his heart. So the line is lust. So it looks like you're not going to get physical. All right, if you want to honor God, don't go anywhere near the line before wedding day. Don't even try to lust. And if you're cuddling, you're making out, I don't know how you don't lust. Like, that takes some superhuman strength right there, all right? If you're, like, hanging out late at night, I don't know how you don't lust. Like, maybe tell me after service how that happens, but I think if you're doing anything like that, you're probably lusting. So if I had to give you a line, this is what I would say. And I didn't do this before marriage, so I'm being a hypocrite. But I would say, don't even kiss. That's what I would say. If I had to give you a line, like, God's best, I kiss before marriage. Our engagement pictures, we have one in our house. We're kissing. There's a sun going through. It's, like, really beautiful. <laughs> but I would say that's a great line. But if you think that, that you can give a peck or whatever and, and it's good, which, you know, you can do that, then I would say definitely don't make out. That you're, yeah, don't do it. You know you're going to lust if you make out. Don't even go there. Don't cuddle. Don't lay on the bed together. Don't do that. If you want to give a little peck like the, like the European men do, go ahead. Like, I would like to kiss some dudes, but they're also weird about it. And I won't lust, because I just think that's a nice form of affection. So you, go ahead and do that if you want. But I would say, like, anywhere past that, you're probably going to start lusting. All right, I'm just playing around with you. Okay, so I'm not really playing around. But anyway, so John Mark Homer, in his book, Loveology, gives us three reasons why it's on. Or why it's unwise to stir up sexual activity before marriage. So the first thing is this. He says a cause. We talked about this earlier. But when two people have sex, they become one. And, and if you do this with someone before marriage or before the covenant's made, then two things can happen. One, a bad relationship can get drawn out longer. So dating is to figure out if that's the person you're supposed to spend your life with. If you're having sex with that person, it's very hard to be objective because you have been fused together with that person. So it's hard to be objective and to see that person is supposed to be your spouse. So it can drag out a bad relationship longer. And the second thing is when it's broken off, if it is broken off, it causes intense hurt because you're breaking a cod. It's like part of yourself is being left behind. It's the first thing he says. So the second reason why he says you should not have sex before marriage is sex obscures your vision and judgment. So again, you're trying to figure out if this person can be someone that you spend your life with. If you're getting it on, it's hard to be objective. It's hard to be objective. It's hard to look at the person and say, is this someone that I want to spend my life with? 
Sex is meant to fuse you with someone. It's, it, it, it's supposed to glue you with that person. So if you're having sex with someone, it's really hard to be objective. Third thing is you cannot build a relationship on sex. Trust me, you cannot build a relationship on sex. I love sex, but, the, but uh, my favorite thing about Emily is our friendship. And that's something that you should want to build your marriage on, not sex. Sex is a great bonus. It's a good part of it. But friendship and mutual calling in life should be the things that you build your relationship on. All right, the fourth and final thing, and this will be quick. We're almost done. If we want to do sex God's way, we must know that Jesus can wash us of our sexual morality. Jesus can wash us. So if the band wants to come up, the singers can wait till the prayer time. But Jesus can wash us of our sexual morality. So at the beginning of our text, Paul, or Paul listed a, a bunch of sins but then in verse 11, he says this. He says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So if you came in here tonight, or you skipped and you're, and you're listening online because you didn't want to be here and have to be through this whole sex talk, which I know is going to be some people, then I want to tell you something. If you're feeling down and guilty because of your past, I would, I think Jesus wants to talk to you tonight, and he wants to say that you don't have to feel that guilt or to feel that guilt and to feel that weight anymore. You don't have to be crushed under it. Just like I was crushed on that morning of July 23rd of 2011, I felt so crushed. And Jesus wants to say that I can wash you. I can give you a fresh start. I can cleanse you. I can help you to live holy. I can make you right with God. I've seen God do it over and over again. I've seen him do it over and over and over again. There's a story of a, a friend who was living with his girlfriend. And they heard a talk similar to this at their church. And, and they were planning on getting married in like a year. And then they moved their wedding date up. Like all the way up to like two weeks from that day. Because they wanted to honor God. And to get married. And, and, and to make a change. So they got married. Because, because they knew that, that God had called them to be together. But that sex should not happen. But inside marriage. And, and they were already living together. So they decided to do that. There's a Kyle director. Um, up in North Dakota, who was in a lesbian committed relationship for two years, two years, and God freed her of that. Through accountability and through God's word, God set her free. Now she's married to a man, and, and they're leading a college ministry. God can set you free. God can forgive you. He's not surprised by your sin. He's not surprised. He's seen it all. Anything is possible. Forgiveness is always possible with God. It's always possible. Anything is possible with God. Like you may think this is an impossible situation. God could not set this right. That's why I felt that. Uh, I felt on that morning. I felt, hey, I'm never going to meet someone who's a Christian. Like no one's going to want to marry me who's a Christian after I've done this. But a month after that, I met my wife Emily, who had saved herself for marriage. So although I blew it, God still gave me Emily. All right, I'm not saying it's going to happen for you. I'm not saying that God will work in the same way for you. But I am saying that just when you think that, that your situation is so dire, that your situation can never be repaired, God says, God says, watch me. He says, watch me do my thing. I can do it. I can set you free. I can forgive you. So if you came in here tonight and you're broken and, and you're feeling crushed by your sin, I want you to know that Jesus didn't just die for me, but Jesus died for you and forgiveness is available. So Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die once you got it all together. He died when you were still a sinner. 
First John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful and just to forgive you. He's faithful and just to forgive you. I'm just praying that the Lord would give some forgiveness in this place tonight. I'm praying that you would get to the end of yourself and be willing to repent of your sin and to get to experience the beautiful, uh, the beautiful reality of being told, yes, you are more flawed than you could ever imagine. Like, your sin is pretty bad. But at the same time, I love you more than you could ever dream. And my love is, is deeper. And, and my love is wider. And it's taller than, than you could ever imagine. My love goes beyond the bounds of your sin. My love is able to penetrate even the hardest of hearts. I pray tonight that you would experience that reality. So the main idea, again, is if we want to do sex God's way, we have to know that God can cleanse us of our impurity and enable us to live a life of purity. If you're going to live this life of purity and grow into the person of purity that God calls you to be, then you have to know that forgiveness is available. That has to be your motivation. All the things we do in purity, all the obedience we do to God is not to earn his love or forgiveness, but instead it's out of response. It's a response to the love and the forgiveness that he's already shown us. It's out of a response to this verse, Romans 8.1. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. There's no one who can condemn you in all the world. Satan cannot condemn you. Your sin cannot condemn you. If you're in Christ, if you put your faith in him, then there's no condemnation. And when that reality gets deep down inside your gut, that causes you to live differently. Because if God could look at your sin and say, there's no condemnation, then that causes you to live a life of gratitude and servitude to God. His love is unending. His love is almost irresponsible. It's reckless, as that song says. And that irresponsible love should cause us to live differently. So if you've tasted the love of God and you have not changed the way you live, I challenge you tonight to taste it again. Taste his love again. So stand with me tonight. We're going to pray.